Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servant, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of God for this morning. Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. Paul, thank you for a beautiful reading. I don't think I'll be able to read it quite as well as you as I rehearse part of the sermon and uh, reread sections of this. But welcome to Trinity. Uh, we are in a new series that we have entitled That You May Believe. We're going to be going through the Gospel of John. And as was mentioned, I don't know if it was mentioned this morning, but in our community groups, if you're interested in being a part of a group, we're going to be complementing the sermon series uh, with, uh, in our community groups, going through the book that's at the back. It's entitled Gentle and Lowly. If you're new to Trinity, we gave one of those out last week to anybody and everybody who would like one. Even if you're saying, I'm a visitor, I'm not sure if Trinity's going to be home, take one of those books. There's one at the back for you, a gift. But if you're in a community group, please take one. They're going to be beginning soon and then using that to complement this series, going through Gentle and lowly. But the series we're in has to do with belief, that you may believe. You may remember that this comes from John's purpose statement. I love the fact that, you know, there's all sorts of things that we interact with, all sorts of things we do, and you go, why did I just do that? Why did I just read that? Why did they say that? John records about the life of Jesus Christ, but then he tells us why. And this comes from verses 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He goes, I've written a lot about this man named Jesus. It's so that you might believe, and in believing in him, you might have life, not just life in the eternal life and the life to come, but you might have a quality of life right now that transcends anything and every other ideology that you can find. John wants you to believe in him. We live in a moment where faith and belief are shifting, not waning. You see the difference? 
We live in a moment where faith and belief are shifting, transforming, changing, but it's not waning. Spiritual hunger is alive and well, and it always will be. Don't forget that. Spiritual hunger is not going anywhere. However, for many, our beliefs and our hopes and our foundations of faith are being simply transferred to other, what I want to call, non-ultimate realities. Non-ultimate realities. That could be politics. It could be education. It could be something about your race or your culture. It could be where you grew up. It could be where you've come from. These non-ultimate realities are becoming the centerpiece of who our nation and what this Western moment is about. It's not as if spiritual hunger is going anywhere. It's just being transferred to something else. Everything is vying for a portion of your belief shares. You hear that? Everything is vying for a portion of your belief shares. And the reality is Jesus is too. But if you hear John's purpose statement, Jesus doesn't just want part of your life. Jesus wants all of it. John is presenting Jesus as ultimate reality. He wants you to believe that Jesus is a whole lot more than a great preacher or a teacher or a humanitarian or a kind soul who happens to be able to do miraculous things. He wants you to pay attention to those things, but he wants you to conclude that this man is none other than the Son of God. Stop for a moment and just think about that statement. This guy that's being written about in four Gospels is God's Son who's come to our planet, who has a message has something that he is teaching, but it's ultimately all about his life and his death and his resurrection. This is a historical reality, not a mythological hope, a historical reality. And so we've come to rally around the fact that really Jesus showed up, he really was the Son of God, and if he really was who he says he was, then our lives have to come into contact with that reality and it changes things. Jesus doesn't want a portion of your belief shares. The reality is he wants all of your belief shares. And in having that, and in getting that, you're going to find more life than you could ever imagine. That's what John is saying. Some of you are skeptical. I was too. Anybody who's become a Christian, they were too. But they've leaned into that reality, and we're here together as a community saying, let's go deeper. Let's learn about this person together. Join arms with me, and let's follow him. Right? Apprenticing under Jesus is a major part of who we are. So that's why we're going in that direction this fall. Let me say this before I jump in officially. John is giving us clues to follow along the way. He is helping us confirm and really believe who Jesus is and who millions if not billions of others who have followed him have confirmed that he actually is the Son of God. So three things I'm going to take you through is number one, we're going to look at helpful clues. I'm going to explain a bit more of that. Hard truth and abiding joy. Helpful clues in this mystery about the person of Jesus, hard truth that Jesus has to say and share, and then an abiding joy that comes from that. So under part one, helpful clues. Let's look again at verse one. Verse one says this, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
If you want to understand a little bit about the breakdown of the Gospel of John, John is arranged masterfully in essentially two parts. Part one is chapters 1 through 11. We're only going to be delving into the first part of John this fall. This is considered the book of signs, or in some ways the book of clues, where Jesus is revealing his glory. Then 12 through 21 is considered the book of glory, where Jesus receives his glory. So in part one, you've got the revelation of it. We've got these signs and we've got these clues. John drops seven of them, seven clues in the first part, chapters 1 through 11. We're looking at the first sign or the first clue, which takes place here at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Now, as a pastor, uh, I get to do a lot of weddings, and uh, when I was at Redeemer, I was kind of the the wedding guru. I think one season, I probably did 10 or 15 weddings in like three or four months, which is a huge joy, people getting married, people inviting us to parties, and we like to eat, and so we always go, and so we enjoyed these parties, but one of my favorite stories, I don't know if I have shared it here or in other contexts, was where I got an opportunity to do a wedding up in San Francisco. We were still living on the East Coast at the time, but the the couple uh, blessed us. They allowed my wife to come with me, and we were doing this wedding outside of the Bay Area and San Francisco area. And the wedding was with some family members who did not speak English well, did not know much about Christianity. And at that time, I was always including a song or a worship song in each of the weddings. That has since changed predominantly because of what I'm about to tell you. And so we, would, we were including this beautiful music, this beautiful song. And this was the first time I'd ever had the opportunity to do a wedding where I was in the center of the audience. Not literally like this, kind of standing out in the middle, but it's one of those circle weddings, maybe, where there was a crowd here, crowd here, crowd here, and crowd there. So I was in the middle with the bride and groom, and the band was over on the side. They were uh, live music, and so we were trying to get this music going, as with all weddings. We probably didn't check in on time. I don't know much about music, so I couldn't give them specific instruction, but the song was way too slow. And as the music starts, because nobody's familiar with Christianity, and largely nobody spoke English, there were about 300 guests, and I was in the middle singing a solo, all right? I was the only person singing, and I'm like, my wife knows this song. Where is my wife? And I cannot find her in front of me, and I'm probably doing this, like, oh, there you are. You better sing with me on this song. And so between verses one and two, no joke, I go, listen, we got to stop. We got to stop. You got to pick it up. That was so slow. And all of y'all got to sing with me because I'm singing a solo. And they laughed and they tried to kind of mumble along. And we've moved on to the vows as quickly as possible. We have all got stories. Maybe it was your wedding. Maybe somebody else's wedding. Weddings are amazing. But you see the humanity of Jesus and the simple fact that he likes to party. Right? He enjoys his community. All of the symbolism of a wedding, which I'm going to unpack for you some of the conversations between these unnamed characters. John wants you to zero in on Jesus, by the way. He's the only person named here. Mary's not even named here. She's just called the mother of Jesus. John is putting your attention right on Jesus. But there's all this rich symbolism in a wedding from the color of a bride's dress. Not this bride's dress, but the purity and the beauty. You have rings that are exchanged. These are all symbolic. They're all clues. You have a covenant that's entered into and not a contract. You have arrangements of the families and the symbolism of two families coming together. You have all of this beautiful symbolism, even within Christianity itself. The symbol is the wedding of what? God's love for you. God says, I love you like that. I'm committed to you like that. I make vows to you like that. Within the Christian tradition, the wedding itself is the symbol. 
See, and for John and for Jesus, this is very important. All of his clues that he's dropping in the first half of this gospel, they're not raw displays of power. That's not the type of clue that Jesus is dropping. He's dropping a different type of sign, a different type of symbol. If he was coming out, remember, this is really the first sign. This is the arche sign. That's the Greek word. This is the primary beginning of his ministry. This is the very first. And so if you're having a coming out party as the Messiah and the Son of God, this might not be the type of miracle that you choose. In fact, if you pay attention to the details, nobody even saw it happen. It happened so discreetly that they go and deliver the water that's been turned into wine. They taste and they go, something happened. There's no fireworks. There's no smoke and mirrors. There's no thunder. Nobody's raised from the dead. Nobody is miraculously healed. It's just this strange thing that happens with these six stone water jars where whatever was inside is no longer the same. It's been changed. It's discreet. And the reason, you ought to be intrigued by that, you go, what's that for? What's he trying to say through that? And why a wedding? No big crowds, just a small, simple, little village wedding in this town called Cana of Galilee. See, but Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, weddings are a very big deal today. How many of you got married during COVID? Do we have any, some COVID weddings? One, two, three. Anybody else on this? I've got, man, bless y'all, right? It's not an easy time to get married, um, but weddings are a big deal, and you plan literally for months to get married, and the celebration is a couple of hours, but you plan for months and months. All of the detail is fine-tuned. You're waiting for that one day and that one celebration. It is a huge deal today. In the United States alone, the wedding industry is around a $60 billion industry. This is big deal, big money, beautiful brides and decent-looking grooms, and so we've got a big deal happening in the United States, but in the ancient Near East, this was an even bigger deal. You planned maybe for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, for a week-long celebration. Some of you think, man, I can only handle a couple of hours. You need to do this for weeks, days on end. This is days on end. And everybody in town was invited because this was not just so much about the happiness and satisfaction of the folks who were getting married. This is kind of a symbol of two families and a village getting stronger because of the bonds. And in an honor and shame culture, like in the ancient Near East, solidarity and the health of a community, not just individual happiness, was really what's at stake when you bring two families together and you invite the entire village to come and be a part of your wedding. Keep in mind... This is not an affluent, influential place. This is Cana of Galilee. This is a little rural village. For many people in the ancient Near East, their wedding was a pinnacle moment in their lives. In fact, as I was reading, some of the scholars said that some of the, um, the more impoverished areas, they would treat the bride and the groom as if they were king and queen just for a few days because their lives were so difficult. This is their moment. I mean, they've been thinking about this their whole lives. They've been waiting to be honored and to be treated, to be able to bless the folks who've come to celebrate their wedding. And then what you have in the middle of this story is the most important element in an ancient Near Eastern wedding has run out, that element being the wine. And of course, as I mentioned already, in an honor and shame culture, this is much more than an example of poor oversight and poor planning. This is social disaster with layers upon layers, weeks, months, potentially even years and years of social shame because they were not ready, they were not prepared. The bride's family even had legal right to sue the groom's family for this particular oversight. 
And this is why we should not minimize the distress in Mary's voice when she comes to Jesus and says, look, they've got no more wine. Another aspect of the clue is the wine itself, because in the Bible, wine is always symbolic of joy. Keep that in mind. Wine is always symbolic of joy. Psalm 104 says this, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wine equals joy in biblical symbolism. So when Mary comes to Jesus, she's essentially saying, Jesus, the party is over. The joy is gone. This thing is going downhill and downhill fast. They've been waiting to celebrate, but the shame is coming. The embarrassment is coming. Right? The tears are coming. In part, here's what I think is happening. John is showing us that even the best moments in life, in time, will always prove joyless and empty without Jesus. Even the best moments in life are going to prove empty and joyless without Jesus at the center of them. Think about your life and that constant search for satisfaction and meaning and happiness, man. The best of things, the dearest of friends, the most exotic vacations, the newest technology cannot and will not ever appease the vacuous thing going on in your soul. They cannot bring us real joy. But Jesus can. Look again at verse 9. A really unique phrase is used there in verse 9. In verse 9, we're introduced to someone who is considered the master of the feast. Wouldn't it be cool to be called the master of the feast? I'd love to be the master of the feast. Let's go to his house. That dude's the master of the feast Jesus is having a conversation with somebody who's the master of the feast. Essentially, you might think wedding coordinator, somebody who keeps the wedding moving forward, who makes sure the next dish is ready, who makes sure the, the proper wine is set out to make sure that everybody can get home, make it call in the DDs and all the things that we need so that you have somebody to help you in this situation. Most likely, they were walking, of course. And so we're taking care of people. They're taking care of the situation in the party. Jesus, he comes in. And he says, when I turn the water into wine as this first sign, what he's doing is he's actually telling us, I'm the master of the feast. I'm the real master of the feast. All of the joy, all of the celebration, all of the laughter, I can not only heal you on the inside, I can heal all of you. All of that social embarrassment, all of that stuff that's going to last for weeks, if not months, I'm the one who can take away that embarrassment. I'm the one who can heal your past. I'm the one who can bring laughter out of tears. I am the master of the feast. Jesus, he's saying, I'm the source of the joy. But accompanied with that is this hard truth, part two. He is helping us wrestle with a very difficult truth that in order for our guilt and shame to be taken away, we actually have to be cleansed. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. 
Within the nation of Israel, God had established this elaborate system in order to distinguish Israel from the surrounding nations. They were supposed to be a people who were guided by righteousness and justice and love. And the purity laws and the sacrificial system were established to, number one, listen, symbolize the need for washing and cleansing and holiness of life. That's in part why the whole Old Testament is filled with a strange purity system and sacrificial system. What is going on there? It's a symbol. It's a sign of the need for purity of life, righteousness, holiness. This is who we're supposed to be. But number two, it's supposed to pave a way for you to experience the presence of God again. In other words, you can't come into his presence unless you've been cleaned up, unless you've been cleansed, unless you've been washed. You can't have access to God. And there were countless rules and regulations that provided instruction on how to maintain this external beauty and cleanliness, purity. You can wash the hands, you can wash the face, you can wash the feet, you can keep the body clean. Don't touch certain things. This is all external, right? All outside of the body. But of course, it's supposed to point to the need for internal cleansing of the human heart. And they got stuck. They got stuck on the externals. Maybe you get stuck on the externals. Religion being something that I'm just supposed to display to the world, that's not the point. It's not about religious externals. It's about the external things shaping the interior life by God's grace that you might know him and be welcomed back into his presence again. When Jesus instructs the servants at the wedding to fill those sticks, those sticks, those six stone water jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. In other words, like there's a lot of people at this wedding. We got to stay clean. You got to wash your body, wash your face, wash your hands, wash your feet. There are six stone water jars used for that purpose. What is all this about? When Jesus says, grab those jars that were used for ceremonial washing, what he's saying is that what the entire system has pointed to in theory, I am here to do in reality. How do we know that's true? Well, look at Jesus' cryptic answer to his mother, Mary. She says to Jesus, they have no more wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me, my hour? has not yet come. It's a cryptic answer. Within Christianity, Jesus' hour always refers to his hour of death. It's always about the cross. It's always about the crucifixion. You see, Mary comes and says, they have no more wine. And Jesus essentially replies and says, I know they have no more wine. I know the joy is gone. I know embarrassment is coming. I know they're going to need their guilt and shame to be covered over, but it can only happen if there's a crucifixion. All of that public embarrassment, all of that personal shame, all of that uh, transformation of tears into tears of joy, that can happen, mother, but it's going to require my hour. It's going to take my death on the cross. Christianity, as we said last week, Christianity is a call into a relationship. It is a call to a person. Every great relationship, especially every great marriage, has this beautiful ratio of truth and love. Jesus has this ratio as well. This is a difficult truth. He goes, look, you want to have a relationship with me? i got to clean you. And most of us go, clean? Clean me? Maybe clean them. I've seen their life. I've seen the way they live. I've seen the, the choices they make. I'm not as bad as them, right? I can kind of clean myself up. 
But the difficult truth of Christianity says that unless you come to him and let him purify, change, transform, heal, cleanse, you can't have a connection to him. Jesus says this is where this social shame ends, but you got to be cleansed. Think about any great marriage. You can have two things. Remember, you can have truth and love. If you only have an imbalance of all truth, well, you have a lot of honesty. Thank you for being so honest, but at the expense of kindness and charity and gentleness. You have told me the truth, but we're always butting heads. Yes, you're a truth teller, but where's the graciousness? And if you only have love, well, you're consistently kind, but you're not going into the difficult places that are going to actually take your relationship to a new level. You're going to stay very shallow because all you want to do is love, no truth. Christianity and every great relationship has to have the balance of both. So essentially what Jesus is saying is, I see you. I see what's going on in your life. I know what needs to change. I know we need this transformation from shame to purity and freedom. I know your life. I know your heart. You need it. But I'm going to love you, never leave you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you and for you. Let's go do this together. A beautiful balance in Christianity between truth, I got to be cleansed, Jesus would say, absolutely. But I'm going there with you. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. I'm kind. Let me use this as an example. Throughout 2020 and now 2021, we have all been the unwilling participants in a pandemic. We have become corporately aware of a virus that can't that we can't actually physically see. You can see the effects. You can see the impact of fear, all of the fear that has caused, the damage that's ensuing from its spread. In the Bible, when it talks about the human heart, the interior life, it says that there's this thing going on that's a corporate pandemic as well. You may not be able to see it or define it, but you can always see the result of it. You can see the impact of it. You can see the type of conversations I'm having and you're having. You can see the thought life and the patterns of what's going on in my life. If you actually saw what was going on in my mind and my heart, you'd be like, man, I'm not coming back to his church. But the reality is that's the truth for all of us. This is who we really are. We keep a beautiful facade, but there is a pandemic going on in my life and in my heart, and I don't always want to name it. I don't always want to see it. Go back to the beginning of 2020. March 8th was our last Sunday. March 15th was the first one that we had off. And that week, we were getting all the news about what was going on in the world. What was one of the first instructions that was given about this silent, invisible killer besides go and get as much toilet paper as you can? What was the first instruction, essentially, besides maybe wear a mask? It was wash your hands. You've got to get cleaned up. You've got to stay clean. You've got to stay healthy. And see, when it comes to not only the exterior, the externals, Christianity says if you're quiet enough, you already know that there's part of your life that's got to be cleaned up, covered over, and changed. You might not be able to see it, feel it, name it, define it, but inside of each of us is this gnawing sense, man, this is not right. What's going on in our world is not quite right, but what's going on in me is not quite right. And so what we do is we use other things to cover up and to cover over. What about all of that relentlessness at work? What about serial dating? What about never finding satisfaction? What about consistently spending on things that you realize, man, I don't even want this? What's going on in our lives and in our hearts? We are finding something that we can cling to to cover us over, to make us worthy, to clean us up. And Jesus goes, it's never going to work. It's never going to be enough, but I'll do it. Right? I'll do that for you. 
It's very human to use something other than God, ordinarily a very good thing to bring order and purpose and healing and meaning into the human life, into the human soul. He says, you can't do it, but I can. How? Through his hour. Right, through his hour. When Jesus died on the cross for you, shameful and naked, he took upon himself our sin, our selfishness, our guilt, our preference for self over and above God, our misordered loves, which places him second or third or fourth. And when Jesus died, what he is creating is a pathway for laughter and for joy to win again. How? As John said last week, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as a fulfillment of every Old Testament sacrifice, as the true source of cleansing and purity and healing. The reality is you can go try whatever you'd like. God has given you freedom. Go try. But you're consistently going to feel empty, unsatisfied, as if there is something missing. And Jesus says, it's me. It's the hard, beautiful, glorious truth of Christianity. Got to be cleaned up but I am the source of it. I'm the fulfillment of it. Come and apprentice with me and find out what this looks like right here and right now. This means there's no inside track when it comes to Jesus. Do you notice that? Jesus has an interesting dialogue with his mother. The first time that she comes to him, maybe it's in verse 3, she, she's essentially rebuffed and kind of pushed off. It might have even sounded as if Jesus was being rude when he calls her woman. This is not a disrespectful term, nor is it an endearing term. This is kind of like saying, madam, madam, mother, what does that have to do with me? He's not being rude, but he's saying, you have no right to infringe upon my will anymore as my mother. Wow. No inside track. Nothing you can do to cleanse yourself. No inside track, no family members. Now Mary has to begin to relate to him by faith. When she comes to him by faith in chapter 5, when she says, do whatever he tells you, that is this incredible statement of faith. What happens the moment people take her up on that word? Transformation. Transformation. The glory of grace is there's no inside track. Hallelujah. Nobody's got a, a first step on me. Hallelujah. Jesus has come to heal all of us. Hallelujah. There's nothing I can do to get out front. Hallelujah. No insiders, all grace, including his mother. What an amazing thought that this is how God relates to each of us. Lastly, helpful clues, hard truth. I think it always leads to an abiding joy. This last part is telling that when the master of the feast tastes that water that had become wine, what was his response? He goes, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Wouldn't it be cool to be able to kind of bottle that vintage? This is Jesus wine. I would love to have a bottle of that and see what it tasted like. I'm not a wine connoisseur. Many of you know a whole lot more about wine than I do. But they go, this, I've never tasted anything like it. This is so amazing. And this is symbolic. This is a sign. Jesus is going, taste what I've got to offer you. It's the best. There's nothing like it. It's so deeply satisfying. Man, when he tasted it, it's the first thing he said. This is the best. Man, go out and taste other things. Go out and do it. But you're going to always come back and say, what did he say? What is he offering? Is it really good? Come into a community and taste and see how rich, how beautiful, and how deeply satisfying Jesus really is. Not only does Jesus perform his first miracle at a wedding, if we zoom out, the larger narrative of Christianity says that he actually relates to you 
as a bridegroom to his bride. This is where the abiding joy comes. This is what it means to understand the relationship. Am I somebody who kind of makes mistakes and he rolls his eyes when I come walking back and say, Jesus, I need some help? He goes, you again? It's you again? But I thought I blessed you last time. You didn't get the picture? That's kind of what we think, isn't it? He's a little tired of us. He's a little weary. He's got his eyes on lots of people, lots of things. But when I come into his presence, he goes, all right, come on, I'll help you. That's not the biblical description. He goes, that's my beloved bride. I love her so deeply. You fill up his heart. You fill up his mind. He is praying for you all the time. He can't stop thinking about you. You, in fact, are the source of his joy. This is how Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 puts it. And let us run with perseverance the race, mark, uh, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before him? It was you. It was your life, it was your heart, it was your cleansing, it was your covering, it was your shame being given way to joy and laughter. This is his first sign. He goes, man, this is who I am. I want you to see what I'm about. First of many. But this incredible revolution. Right? He goes, look what can change when you come into contact with me. N.T. Wright comments that transformation, as I mentioned a moment ago, it only happened when somebody took Mary's faith or her words seriously. Do what he says. Do what he tells you. Which means you have to stop and think about your life. There are things that you're going to have to revise, change, and what the Bible calls repentance. I've got to bring my life into his orbit. He has to become the mental framework by which I view all things. Some things, no, all things have to be viewed through the lens of your faith. He's that big. He's not some guy. He's not Sasquatch. He's not Santa Claus. He's the real deal. He's the son of God. I'm just going to view a few things through his lens. No, all things through the lens of Jesus's reality based on the love that he says, come, find life in me. I've given my life for you. Bono said joy is always an act of defiance, and it is where you refuse to let the other false joys fill you up. And you go, it's going to be Christ. I'm going to let him fill me. It's not easy, but to apprentice under him is beautiful. Can you see, feel, sense those clues in your life, your world, your orbit? He's going to continue to drop them. And we're going to continue to go forward, following him together. Let's pray. Jesus, sometimes we treat you as if you were make-believe, not real, false story. How do we know that? Well, intellectually, we assent. But there's really no sense of transformation. There's no change. There's no change of direction. There's no change of heart. I thank you that you're so kind, so patient, so gracious, that you continually whisper, come and see, come and follow, come and explore, use your mind, study the scriptures, and see that I'm good. Transformation happens when we take you at your word. 
Mary understood that the hard way in some senses. She could no longer infringe on your will as mother. She had to come by faith. But hallelujah that that's true. We're invited to come to you by faith. There's nothing I can add to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He has done it all. He has appeased the old system. He's cleansed us through his own shedding of blood. Now, we don't have to spend a life shedding ours. Would you release us right now, O Holy Spirit, from the oppressive messages, the oppressive past, the things, the memories, the, the choices, the families, the aspirations that war against you? Would you just pound on our affections, pound on our hearts, and fill us with the truth that we are broken, but with Jesus we can be put back, we can be healed. Thank you for your lavish, unending love. May we respond to it in song, but more than that, respond to it as we leave this space and go live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.